All right, if you would turn with me, please, in the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 20 this morning. We're going to begin in John chapter 20, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use the one in the chairs underneath you, in front of you. We'll also have Scripture on the screen for you to be able to follow along. But this is what we do every week. We open up the Word of God, we read it, we understand the sense of it, and then we listen to the Holy Spirit apply it to our lives. So that's what we're going to do again this morning. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful time in your presence in the glory of God as we have lifted you up. You are on the throne. You are a good God. And all you do is good. And you reign forevermore. And this morning, Father, we sit down and pay attention to the passage of Scripture that makes us know for sure that Jesus is alive and he is our soon and coming King. Holy Spirit, be at work. Continue to be at work inside of our hearts and minds and lives, drawing us nearer to you, opening to us the understanding of your word. And Lord, that you would do inside of us the kinds of things that only you can do. In your magnificent name we pray. Amen. I know it isn't Easter, but he is risen. Nice. Last week, we paid close attention to the cross of Jesus Christ in John chapter 19. And we made the case and we went throughout Scripture to try to understand how Scripture understands the cross and the centrality of the cross and how the cross is right at the center of the Christian faith. Now, if the cross is at the center of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the glory that lights out in every direction from the cross. Like the nuclear fission in the core of a star, the cross is where the resurrection is birthed. And from there, all of us are shown the light and the glory of God. The resurrection makes our hope sure and permanent. Ours is not the kind of hope that we put in other human beings or uncontrolled and uncontrollable future events, but in the reality, the physical reality of our risen Savior. In the end, the resurrection ends the power of sin and death. It tells us that Jesus Christ wins. It tells us that eternity is full of life instead of death. And as Jesus has told us over and over inside of this gospel, believe in him and you will have eternal life. But the very first Resurrection Sunday is actually full of confusion and doubt and fear on behalf of Jesus' disciples. Some of the women arrive at the tomb early in the morning on the third day to take care of a corpse, but it isn't there. A couple of disciples in our passage of Scripture this morning run to the tomb to see for themselves, and their reaction is less than overwhelming. But then Jesus begins to talk to his disciples. He begins to find them. He begins to deal with them. He begins to speak with his disciples. So in our passage of Scripture, here are the things that we're going to see this morning. We're going to see this. The disciples struggle with belief, with belief that Jesus has risen from the dead. 
Now, they have been told that this would happen. They've actually been told when this would happen. But this really is an incredible thing. And some of these disciples were there when he was arrested. A few of them were there when he actually died on the cross. So to believe that he's risen from the dead, they're not entirely prepared for it. So the disciples, in fact, throughout all of John chapter 20, they're going to struggle. They're going to stumble at the belief that Jesus has risen from the dead. But then we're going to watch this happen. Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. Their stumbling, their confusion, their fear does not stop him from finding them, calling them by name, and proving to them that he is alive. It's an incredible and encouraging thing that we watch happen between Jesus and his disciples in this chapter. And then I want to make sure, like we did last week with the cross, we want to we want to deal with this question and how the rest of Scripture answers this question. What does the resurrection mean? Is it true? Can we rationally believe that he actually rose from the dead? And then does it really matter? Let's begin reading in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he stopped, excuse me, ha, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So now on the first day of the week, where we finished in John chapter 19 was the day in which Jesus was crucified and buried. Jesus is crucified and buried on a Friday. The disciples are in a dark, locked room on Saturday, on the Sabbath. And then Jesus rises first thing on the third day on Sunday morning. This, by the way, is why the Christian church has for 2,000 years now celebrated our faith on Sunday morning rather than the Sabbath. Technically, every Sunday morning is Resurrection Sunday morning for us. So we celebrate the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene comes, and the other Gospels tell us it's not just her. It's some other of the women, the disciples as well. They come to the tomb to tend to a corpse. She's come to clean it. She's worried that they've taken him away and buried him someplace else. Notice that throughout these conversations, Mary has come to take care of a corpse. Now, this would have been a traditional practice amongst family and loved ones to keep a corpse clean as long as possible. So they come to take care of someone who is dead 
They don't arrive first thing at the tomb to see a risen Savior. When Mary shows up, she sees the stone has been rolled away. A large stone probably rolled back uphill just a little ways. It's not something she could have done. It's not something a couple of the disciples could have done. It's not something that a weak and broken Jesus could have done to get himself out of the tomb. It is a divine event that has rolled the stone away from the tomb. And Mary, when she processes this, she goes back and she finds Simon Peter and she finds John and she says, look, someone has taken our Lord out of the tomb and they've buried him someplace else. I don't know where he is. So Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, this is the way John, the gospel writer, refers to himself, the one whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter and John, they run to the tomb to see what Mary and the other women are talking about. And I love these kind of details amongst the disciples. When they talk about themselves and each other, we get these I don't know. I find them fascinating little glimpses into their relationships with each other. I was faster than Peter. I got there first. John and Peter, they run to the tomb. John gets there first. He beats Peter. And what he does is he stops at the entrance. And he stoops in to see what's going on inside. Inside of these traditional cave-like tombs or tombs that have been hewn out of rock, The doorway would have been rather short, a little bit small, so an adult would have to stoop over and half-crawl their way inside of one of these tombs to see what's going inside. And while John is stooped there, he's looking through the corner of the tomb, Peter just barrels right into the tomb to see what's going on. And everything they see is testimony against grave robbing. Jesus wasn't buried with barrels full of gold and fine jewels the way that other kings of history would have been buried. He was buried with spices, but those spices have been around a corpse. You're not going to take those and cook with those now. He's buried with the linen cloth, the most valuable thing left inside of that tomb, and the cloth that would have been wrapped around his head. These are the most valuable things, but what has happened is Jesus has risen from the dead and he has just simply made his way out of those clothes. And that linen cloth has just sunk to the stone where Jesus had been laid. Then they see that face wrapping. It's not just a napkin, but it's something that had been wrapped around his face and would have been intended to hold the jaw shut as long as possible. He's taken it. He's folded it up nice and tidy, and he's put it in another part of the tomb. He's done, and he's never coming back. And everything they see is testimony against grave robbing, because that's the only thing left to rob out of this grave are those things, but it's all still there. Then the other disciple, John, while Peter is in there, he makes his way in. John the disciple says something very quickly, and I've always found this part of the story fascinating. He says, And the other disciple who reached the tomb first, being John the disciple, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They went back to their homes. John reports this in short order. What does John believe? Does he believe that Jesus has risen from the dead? 
Or does he believe what he's been told by Mary, that his body's been stolen and it's been buried someplace else? Both John and Peter make their way back home. Later on in John chapter 20, we discover the disciples have found each other and they've locked themselves inside of a room for fear of the Jews. John does not turn around and immediately begin preaching the resurrection. He goes back and he hides one more time. As Mary leaves, we're going to discover later on, she still believes that Jesus has been stolen from the tomb. She's still looking for a corpse that she wants to take care of. John may have had just the very beginnings of belief in the resurrection, but even as he states it here, he says, they still did not yet understand that according to the scriptures, Jesus must rise again from the dead. So even if he believes that the resurrection may have happened, it is still small, it is still slight. It has not yet had its impact and changed the life of John the disciple. But he tells us specifically it's not yet based on the scriptures even. Now this is an interesting fact about the resurrection and the way the gospels talk about it. Jesus has told the disciples at least three times now that we'd be turned over to evil people. He would be crucified. He would die, be buried, rise again on the third day. And he would say things like, all this is going to happen according to the scriptures. One of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances in the Gospel of Luke, he finds two of his disciples walking from Jerusalem to a small town called Emmaus. And he begins to explain to them, beginning from Moses, how all of these things were told to us that they would happen. So the Old Testament, the Scripture, has told us that all of this would happen about the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah. There's one other place in the New Testament where Jesus deals with this specifically. Where in Scripture is this talked about? So when we think of the Scriptures and the resurrection, there's at least one place where Jesus speaks of it specifically, and it's interesting. It happens in the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 12. Verses 38 through 40, and it's in a conversation with the Pharisees, and there's always an argument. There's always back and forth with Jesus and the Pharisees. And here's how this part of the gospel goes. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. If you really are who you say you are, we need to see something miraculous from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. They're demanding that he does something for them like a magician. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. One of the fascinating things that comes out of this part of Christ's conversation with the Pharisees is his statement that the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will be the sign for everyone who believes and for everyone who doesn't believe. That's how important this miracle is. We sang about it. We prayed about it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord at his tombstone where he is still buried. It's not how it's going to happen. He is alive forevermore, and all of creation will recognize that he is the risen Lord and Savior. An evil and adulterous generation is demanding things of me. 
And here you go. Here's the bottom line. I will rise from the dead. You're going to have to answer for that one. You're going to have to deal with that one. That Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The disciples haven't seen it yet in the sense of grasping in full comprehension and life transformation. The disciples are stumbling at this point. Part of the beauty of this chapter is how Jesus meets every one of these disciples in ways that make sense to them, in ways that open their eyes. You see, the sun has risen. The light is out, but their eyes are shut. And so Jesus will meet them and he will open their eyes and he will see that he truly is alive and their lives are going to change. And friends, actually everything changes because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they're stumbling. They're trying to make sense of an empty tomb and what it all means. I want to spend a couple of minutes on this question. Is it actually possible that Jesus really physically rose from the dead. I do not believe that the resurrection story is a metaphor. I do not believe that this is a story of spiritual resurrection. I do not believe that this is a fairy tale intended to make us feel better when we are in our darkest hour, that there's some fuzzy sense of light and life out there. I don't believe that at all. I believe that Jesus is alive and he's on the loose. I believe that Jesus physically walked out of that tomb. This is what the church has taught for 2,000 years. So thinking about that, I want to give all of us in this room a few thoughts, three big ideas when it comes to the question, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ real? Is it true? Now, before I get into these, I want to let you know this. One of our teenagers recently used a couple of these evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to lead a bully on a park to faith in Jesus Christ. They turned a bullying conversation into a sinner's prayer using a couple of these evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So, adults, the pressure is on. Here are three big ideas concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the first is this. Jesus was buried in a known tomb, and his enemies could not produce a body. Jesus was not thrown into a common grave. He wasn't shuttled away by his disciples in the middle of the night and buried somewhere where nobody knew where he was. The evidence is clear. Jesus was taken by a prominent Jewish leader, Joseph of Arimathea, one of the Sanhedrin, the way we might think of a senator, someone known and important in their day and age. He buried Jesus in his tomb, not someone else's tomb, but one that he and his family had and was reserved for him. Jesus is buried in a known tomb. His enemies, the Pharisees, who have every reason in the world to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, have every tool at their disposal to produce a body. And when the disciples start talking about Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen, all they have to do is produce a body, but they can't do it. Why can't they do it? Because Jesus is alive. The tomb was empty. 
So he's buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The Roman guard in Matthew, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, tells us this. The Roman guard was frightened away by the angels, but they were bribed by the Pharisees to tell the falsehood that the disciples stole the body. And that, uh, that falsehood did not last very long. And the disciples, friends, preached an empty tomb in Jerusalem just 40 days after the events of the cross and the resurrection. Now think about this for just a second. If the disciples knew the resurrection was false, you don't start preaching the resurrection in the city where the crucifixion and the burial took place. You disperse yourselves, you go to another city where no one has heard the name of Jesus Christ, and you start making up a story about a resurrection. They didn't do that. In the city where everything took place, while people are still there who watched it all happen, they begin to proclaim, Jesus has risen from the dead. And it happens in Acts chapter 2, the very beginning of the church, not long after the events that we just read. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Peter the apostle says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was all God's doing. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You know this. And Jesus is alive. They're in Jerusalem Pharisees could produce a body. They can't because the tomb is empty. Second big thought when it comes to the resurrection here. The disciples end up, ended up dying for what they knew to be true. You may defend something for a long time, but when your life is put on the line, you're most likely to die for something, not just that you believe to be true or think may be true, but that you know to be true. The disciples believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, even though they had good reason to not believe that. They were afraid of the Jews. They actually accomplished the crucifixion, the torturous death of Jesus Christ. They all know it. They had reason to avoid that. The only reason that caused them to preach the resurrection is that they knew it was true. And in the end, the disciples give their lives for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A dead God cannot make people alive. Their lives were transformed by Jesus Christ. And the third thought is this, and this is something else that you can trace through Scripture. There are many separate eyewitness accounts. Like bringing something before a judge inside of a court is not a lot of hearsay. It's not a lot of just circumstantial evidence. It's, Your Honor, here's our first witness. Here's our next pair of witnesses who saw the same thing at the same time. We've got 500 witnesses waiting out back who all saw the same risen Savior at the same time, and we've got these others. By some accounts, when you read the end of the Gospels, the book of Acts, and the epistles, there are 12 separate appearances over 40 days to different groups of disciples. So we have a lot of eyewitness accounts. A lot of people could crack and say, you know what, we all made it up. Nobody cracked. 
because it really happened. Here's how the Apostle Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the resurrection, how important it is, what it does, how it changes, how it changes the cosmos. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is about. Part of the argument in that chapter is if Jesus was not raised from the dead, all of this is pointless. But he was raised from the dead, so this is the most important thing you could believe. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, Right at the beginning of that chapter, Paul says this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. His point there is you can go check the story. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And he's speaking of his conversion experience, his road to Damascus. Paul is making the case, literally making the case, Jesus is alive. It's come out of the grave. The resurrection really happened. But as we watch it unfold in the morning of the resurrection itself, we're watching the disciples come to terms with this. Peter and John have gone back to their homes. Mary is there still in the garden. She's trying to figure out what to do, and then she has this encounter. Chapter 20, verse 11 but Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Mary stands outside of the tomb and she's weeping. Brokenhearted that the body of Jesus, this man that she loved, has been stolen. Mary stoops to go into the tomb after the other two guys are gone, and she sees these angels. And the angels begin prodding her with these questions Woman, why are you weeping? She sticks with the grave robbing theory because someone's taking his body. I don't know where they've lain him, I don't know where they have reburied him. 
And then she turns around, she turns away, and in her grief, the text just says, and she sees Jesus standing there. And there's something curious that happens in so many of these resurrection appearances that we have in the New Testament. Something about Jesus has changed so much. They don't recognize him at first glance. She actually thinks he's the gardener. Well, he's here early in the morning, attended the tomb and everything around the tomb. And so her approach to him is, if you've taken him somewhere, let me know. I will take the body. I will put him someplace else because I still want to take care of him. How can Jesus be alive after everything she saw? She was at the foot of the cross when Jesus died. How can he be alive again? So she sees the one she thinks is the gardener. And then in one of the most intimate moments between Jesus and a disciple, all he does is speak her name. He doesn't say, Mary, I don't know how many times I have told you people that this is going to happen. He doesn't berate her. He doesn't push her. He doesn't cast her aside because she doubts and is afraid. Like a friend, like someone who loves her more than she will ever know, he just speaks her name. And it's in the timber of his voice. It's in that moment where she hears it. And she knows it's her teacher. She knows it is Jesus. So when she goes back to the disciples, the story that she has is, I have seen the Lord. Now she knows that it is him. And this is incredible, friends. This Jesus the one who is there at the creation of all things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created by Him and through Him and for Him. That's this Jesus, this eternal and almighty God, this one who just defeated death and hell, the Savior who is on His way to the right hand of God the Father, who is now King of all kings, speaks the name of a broken, devoted, confused child of God. That's how much Jesus loves Mary. And that one word changes everything. She knows that he is alive. She no longer has a corpse to take care of, she has a new life to live. That's what that one word does. And friends, you and I need to know this. You and I need to know this. The risen Savior calls your name. Jesus told us earlier on in John chapter 10, the shepherd knows his sheep. He calls them by name. They hear his voice and they come to him because they know him. And here that shepherd calls her name. And she knows it's him. Where there was only death and fear, now there is hope and life. 
where once there was only a fuzzy future with marginal hope, now there is a sure future secured by the one who has conquered sin and death. The resurrection is our life and light. There is no other. The risen Savior can call you by your name. Jesus does an interesting thing. You get the feeling that she has immediately approached him, maybe even immediately wrapped her arms around him. He says, now's not the time to cling to me. I need you to go do something. I need you to go find all of the other disciples who are locked inside of a room because they are scared to death. And tell them, I'm on my way to the Father. I love the way he puts this. What a beautiful little promise. I go back to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So that's exactly what she does. The first evangelist, (laughs) she goes to the disciples and she says, I have seen the Lord. Friends, we need to know. We need to know. This isn't blind faith. This isn't a feeling that comes and goes. We need to know that Jesus is alive. And we can get to know that. We can get to know him. And friends, we even need to have that experience like Mary has, like the disciples will have in the rest of this chapter, the experience in which our hearts and lives are transformed by a risen Savior. But friends, we can know with surety that Jesus is alive. And this is so important because, friends, when the feelings come and go, when the feelings disappear, when the heavens feel like brass, when nothing seems to be going the right way in our spiritual relationship, we can cling to the fact that Jesus is alive. Whether or not I feel it, Jesus is alive. And I cannot make this point enough. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes reality itself. It means that ultimate reality for the follower of Jesus Christ is life, not death. It means any form of idolatry is false. It means any form of nihilism or despair is false. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your eternity is life, not death. It means God is one. He has already won. Jesus is Lord of life and death. Now listen to this, friends. Jesus is Lord of life and death. Reality is not yin-yang. It is not light and dark, forever in a swirling struggle, determining which side's going to dominate, which side will be better, and our actions and decisions, behavior, bring the light to the front or bring the darkness to the front. All of that is garbage because Jesus is life, Lord of life and death. There is nothing that challenges Jesus for authority because he has risen from the tomb. There's still a lot of work to do amongst the disciples, and Jesus is going to appear to them. He's going to talk with them. He's going to restore relationships. In fact, that's most of what the rest of John's gospel is about, and it's just absolutely incredible. But all of that happens because Jesus is alive, and he has every intention of being the Savior 
and the Lord in the lives of his people. Every intention. This risen Savior should never be in the passenger seat. This risen Savior should never be in the background. This risen Savior drives our lives. So what does all of this mean? What is this about? Why is this important? How does the rest of the scripture make sense of the resurrection and where this is going? Here, friends, are at least a handful of thoughts, things that are important for us to understand about what this morning means, what we just read, and why it is important. A first quick thought is this. When a soul is saved, they are eternally changed by the power of a risen Savior. It isn't a different decision that we have made, and now psychologically we have another tool that we can use when we're feeling anxious, and we can sort of lower our blood pressure and we're going to be okay. When a soul is saved, it is forever changed, forever changed by a risen Savior. We're taken from darkness to light, from death to life. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. We say this often at the end of service when we pray together. He simply says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That means your eternity is life, it's not death, because Jesus is alive. So when a soul is saved, they are eternally changed by the power of the risen Jesus. And then, friends, the resurrection of Christ secures our resurrection and eternity with him. The resurrection of Jesus secures our resurrection and eternity with him. One of the pieces of vocabulary the New Testament uses for this is it speaks of Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, that he is preeminent. And that phrase means that because of his resurrection from the dead, all who believe in him follow in that resurrection. It is that power that guarantees me life now and life with him for all of eternity. Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And he, meaning Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. A little bit later on in that chapter, we talked about a moment ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul goes on to say this in verses 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and he's speaking of the fall of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. For by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, as in our human flesh, in our sin, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. It's a beautiful promise. See, our salvation guarantees us life with Christ today and our life with Christ for eternity. Paul, in another place, Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he puts it like this. 
As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I live one more day, it's Christ. If I die by morning, it's Christ. I love the phrase that precedes that, and it's good for us to hear this. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. It takes courage for this to happen in our lives. By that courage, may it occur. And then it turns out that the resurrection is a big deal in all of eternity. In Christ's final, glorious, eternal kingdom, Notice this, friends, the resurrection crowns Christ as king. The resurrection crowns Christ as king. John, the writer of this disciple, at one point in his life, he's in exile by himself, and he watches the book of Revelation unfold before him. He writes it down. He's taken by the Spirit into the day of the Lord, he says. And here's part of what he sees right at the very beginning. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. He's talking about his first sight of the risen, glorious Christ in eternity. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I am alive forevermore. The resurrection crowns Christ as king. Then a little bit later on, as John is beginning to watch what happens in the throne room, in heaven, in the presence of God's perfect and eternal glory. John beholds the songs that are sung, the creatures that are there, the way they approach and deal with what they see, how they are responding. And here's part of that story in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is alive forevermore. Friends, the day is coming. If you are a child of God, this will be the song that you sing with untold numbers of others who are worshiping our Heavenly Father and our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He is risen. Let's pray.